What is up, everyone? My name is Adnan Shafi, and once again, we are here today to be discussing part two of DRC's Curse, its resources, essentially. And I'm really excited to do the second part of the podcast because we're not just going to be looking into history, but we're going to be drawing a very, very, uh, what I'll call golden thread between history and how that's impacted what we're seeing today in the DRC and obviously how this plays into the largest uh, the larger topics of capitalism and imperialism etc and uh, before I start the podcast though I do want to just uh, send my love to the people in Palestine and as usual we just we are totally condemning the actions that Israel has taken especially uh, the recent attacks on Gaza as well and obviously we do not also tolerate uh, the killing of civilians from either side, but we have to recognize the power dynamic is flipped way in favor of Israel. And as we've mentioned here in Pariah Nation, this is a stance that we're going to be taking till the end of time. Uh, but yes, let's get straight into the podcast. And once again, we have Yanga coming on today. Uh, do you want to just give a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, what you're studying as well, and then we'll hop right into it. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me again on the show. Um, my name is Yanga Malotana, and I'm an honor student of political studies at the University of Pretoria here in South Africa. Um, and I'm also currently completing my year experience for the Alan Gray Orbis Foundation. So I have a bit of touch base with things that have to do with business and so on and so forth. Um, and I also work as an assistant lecturer for the university part-time. And very recently, I even work now for the uh, Democracy Development Program, um, this side. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to talk about today's topic. Um, you know, the, the DRC, it is a very special uh, country to my heart. Um, like I think I mentioned in the uh, part one, when I got to first year, it was probably one of the first countries that, that really fascinated me and I, and I wanted to go into an investigation to find out really what was happening. And yeah, it's just been information I've been culminating for the past four years and I'm so excited to share it with you guys. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And the last podcast was already very insightful. We're more or less looking at the more like the historical aspect of the DRC and not necessarily the pre-colonial aspect, but we did look at how the DRC was getting looted uh, significantly during the colonial period. And I think today I just want to start off by discussing a bit of the politics of the knowledge of African suffering in general. Because obviously, yes, we do have studies uh, that have mainly been done and you know we have quite a lot on transatlantic slavery, but even that, right, the fact that I feel I, I just feel like a lot of African narratives, especially African narratives of torture, they're always something that can be questioned. There's always some unwanted nuance, right? Meanwhile, for example, if if you're if you're a Holocaust denier, and obviously, as we said, we're not trying to necessarily downplay anything, also not necessarily trying to just, you know, do oppression Olympics. Uh, what we are trying to do is show clear evidence that governments have reacted differently towards black and white struggles, right? And we're not, they are both struggles. We're not de debating that, right? But for example, you can, uh, in some countries, I think you can even be imprisoned or you can, uh, you know, have to pay a fine if you're like, you know, Holocaust denier, for example. And obviously, yeah, like we agree that that's something you should not be denying something of that scale, right? But obviously now my question is why do 
why am I able to go into a room here in the UK and have a discussion with another person and out here, you know, basically justifying colonialism and colonialism, like guys, there's no dispute. Like we've literally, uh, many African uh, authors have gone into British archives, for example, they've taken documents out of there and they've showed very clear evidence of the oppression that was happening to African peoples. Uh, but it's just so sad that we can ignore that. And I've always mentioned this article, but if you go to Isa Shivji, um, he was, he wrote a massively, you know, influential paper on this. And he mentioned all these different things that were happening in Tanganyika. It was very, very systematic. It was using British reports, British court records, and uh, people who had actually visited Tanganyika. So when you have evidence like that, and you have, for example, crazy numbers like 60,000 people being put to, you know, uh, the corporal punishment was applied to them by the colonial government. And then on top of that, you have uh, the Herero Namakwa genocide happening in Namibia. And then, of course, we have the 15 million Congolese that died between 10 and 15 million Congolese. These are big numbers, right? But there's always nuance. There's always, oh no, we don't want to take down the statue. You know, they had a different side to them. Oh, but they did charity. It's like, guys, we need to see how this, this, I mean, these two situations, unfortunately, they're both magnet, they're both of great magnitude, but they've both been treated differently. So I just want to know for you, someone who's been studying, uh, this topic for a while has is this something that's been popping up in the literature where you start to see even the bias or is it just something that you're seeing amongst lay people oh yes 100 percent um and i think what you're really alluding to over here is that um you know as students in the in the in the global south diaspora the only thing that we're calling for is consistency um the same energy that you have to be as thorough with um, you know the tortures that had happened during the Holocaust and along with the with the minority victims that have also um, been lost during that time um, that consistency that we still see today in Germany where there's these specific laws um, that stand up against even seeing the Nazi flag being flown um, anywhere that same consistency of having uh, uh, you know um, a redistribution of wealth to the families that were affected as a result you know of the holocaust that consistency of seeing reparations being paid not just on a, a monetary level but also on a societal level on a systemic level um, should be the consistency that we are seeing to um, the struggles that africa has been um you know subjected to the corruption that um uh, the, the the mother country has been subjected to um and uh, just bringing it closer, uh, maybe to the South African um, aspect of things, um, having to have walked away by just simply, um, you know, introducing this Kumbaya, we are a rainbow nation, let's just put everything in the past now. Okay, great. Yeah, sure. We can forgive each other. Um, but it doesn't take away from the systemic racism that a lot of Black people are still going through today. The um, fact that there's a new identity now in South Africa and I would argue that this is perhaps the national identity in South Africa, um, not necessarily this rainbow nation thing, but the national identity of poverty. And where does that poverty come from? It's rooted um, in the systemic oppression that goes even beyond um, 
and further back from apartheid during the time where South Africa was still unionized by the D Dutch colony as well as the British colony and the, the, the systemic thinking that went behind ensuring that generations upon generations of black people would be affected um, by the power dynamics that had been affected. And I think it's the same narrative for majority of um, the African countries and we could even probably even argue for some of the Asian tigers um, and the role that colonialism has played to really um, uh, and bring us to, to, to a position where now when we're engaging with literature, um, it's downplayed and in the way that it is it's written about it's 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 almost written in a in a neutral tone as if this was something that was supposed to happen in history as if this wasn't something that took away uh, you know people's lives and livelihood and we just think about um the narrative of uh, the transatlantic slave trade um and how many uh, uh, struggles are not recorded um, and how many uh, uh, torturous things were just not recorded. Whereas if you go into uh, uh, the Holocaust side of things, there's extensive resources that the CIA is holding, that still the, the German government is holding, that shows you how detailed um, everything had gone through. And the fact that they made those resources available to the public so that people could face the reality of what happened. And that's really the only thing that we're calling for in Africa is that same energy where you want people to be confronted with the truth. You want people to have what John Rawls calls this veil of ignorance. You want it to be lifted and you want people to, 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 to see um, the true tortures that King Leopold um, had put people through. I mean, you can't be having sources like uh, A Heart of Darkness by Joseph Kunrad, um, this white guy who's writing his perspective of what was happening in Belgian Congo. And then all of a sudden, you've got someone like Chinua Achebo who releases his book um, uh, in, um, and speaks about the, the fact that the, his uh, trilogies that he released, and he's talking about the, from the perspective of an African, what they were going through when the colonizers had arrived, right? We can't just be having the narrative of the colonizer telling us our own history, our experiences. It's not the same. Um, and I think a, a lot of academics um, are still influenced by that today. And I think part of that is also because of the lack of resources available for them to be able to understand a different perspective other than um, the colonizers' perspective. And that's only because they were so successful in ensuring that our histories and our stories were eliminated um, through the education system, through making sure that our people you know, didn't have the platform to be able to express themselves and write the stories of what was happening. And now we just pick up little evidences from these white anthropologists that travel around and just watch the different cultures and what's going on over there. And we learn through them what our history is and what we are actually supposed to be going through. And it's, it's very rough. It's very tough sometimes to face that as an academic. But I think then uh, as us now, as, 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 as black scholars coming up, if we're questioning the narrative, we're not just taking the sources as they are, I'll be providing critical analysis. And that is why we then also appreciate conceptual frameworks like decolonial thinking. It's very new. It's 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 not a you know it's not something that has been around like liberalism for many years or you know realism and has been developed by these white academics 
time and time and time again, but it is something that I think we are consistently adding to, um, and it would be very fruitful for us where if we continue questioning the system, we will 100% get to a stage where we say, well, this is how things should be, um, and be able to celebrate you know, our conceptual framework as a proper theoretical framework, like our counterparts of realism and liberalism, which have developed themselves into just not questioning um, how their society is, but being able to prescribe how society should be, right? And if we can just move away from having those dominant theories constantly telling us how things should be to the point of where we can say as Africans ourselves or just people in the global South diaspora, this is how we believe things should be for the justice of African people that allows them to be agents of their history, of their story. Um, also not necessarily completely isolating colonial perspectives. Like we can't, we can't uh, ignore the fact that they've added a certain level of um, um, elevation in trying to teach us our history, but we are criticizing that elevation that they've given us. We are criticizing that platform um, that they've given us to be like, okay, now express yourself. No, what are you telling me to express myself on? What is the stage that you've given me? Now give me tools to be able to rebuild it myself. Um, and I think that's kind of like what we're trying to discuss here in these situations and how we can try to find these golden threads, as you mentioned, through history that are able to um, help us explain why our people are suffering the way that they are. Because it's so easy to cop out and say that it's the corruption of the leaders. 100%, but why? Where did it start off? Who taught them the corruption? Who's the father of corruption, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I just want to address that a bit more because I can I can tell you guys, it's like we're not trying to say white people cannot write on black issues, right? Because otherwise that would essentially dilute academics to just, oh, you can only write about what's happening to your own race, even though we have people who are technically higher up the race hierarchy according to you know that white white supremacist thing, writing about other people. But yet we still accept their texts, right? Edward Said has written a bit about you know, Orientalism, etc. And obviously within the Orient, or as they call it, right, there's obviously all kinds of people of all kinds of shades of colors, right? So he's speaking about certain experiences um, within those certain contexts. Uh, but when you look at it from this perspective, what we're trying to say is that people just need to acknowledge the bias. There's a pure colonial bias in the way things uh, are being, you know, essentially level towards black academics and i'll like i'll give you an example because i've done some research and it's one of one of my assignments uh but it's, it's about the topic of uh transatlantic slavery and the relationship with global capitalism and uh one of the things that i've, I've noticed is that when they're discussing the black authors it's like it just seems like it's so patronizing the way they're like they're writing down to the black authors right especially and this is about black suffering right and then you start to see you start to see comments like you know they the what i what i hate is that they try to like you know downplay the 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 words and everything and they try to just cushion it a bit nowadays right uh but when it comes to like <clears throat> something like slavery i don't expect to be seeing a comment in a journal for example oh the slave the transatlantic slave industry was relatively unexceptional it's like how are you going to condemn slavery in the first paragraph and then say something like that, right? So I think the understanding of black suffering in general 
has been so diluted and it's to the point whereby even people start to see black academics right like eric williams although his point yeah did have some uh some epistemological epistemological holes in it right uh it did have some uh, some of those holes but it was still valid because it was a phd thesis and it was also like a book that was like you know peer-reviewed right but people would just treat him like a like an angry black author you know right and yeah Yanga brings up a very good point of black suffering is diluted because it's actually the norm, right? And like, I feel like a lot of white academics and specifically just non-black academics in general, I don't feel like they truly understand that. And also another thing that I want to point out is that when black academics are writing, they're always, especially women, they're always seen as, oh, you're an angry black woman. You need to stop being so emotional. You know, you need to calm down. This is academia, you know, you need to be logical, right? Even though the points are the same, right? Then a white woman can go ahead and write a book like White Fragility. And then it's it's selling everyone. People have been writing this stuff for ages, right? But it seems like when it comes from a non-black person, oh, it's more palatable. So that's obviously, <clears throat> for me, it's a non-starter. Like we need to change academia so that it's more welcoming to you know essentially black uh black authors because a lot of black authors just feel like they've been alienated even while speaking about african history imagine like we don't we don't have that much control of our own history the only major document that i know that actually allows us to, to preach our own history is the unesco world heritage booklet like it's like four or five volumes something like that and it's one of the one of the volumes is in my bio it's on prehistoric africa but even then because of the colonial enterprise guys was still relying on predominantly and sometimes only white sources how has that changed like how to what extent has that changed our outlook on our history like these are questions that we'll probably even ask about in another podcast but we'll actually now just apply that to the the DRC and perhaps start going uh, deeper from there but younger what's been your experience in relation to this topic how have scholars treated it and uh, in comparison to other struggles and like uh, how how do you think that we can be able to actually find out the, the truth about what happened in the DRC and whether or not it was just as they say you know it was just um, <clears throat> or they tried to downplay it you know yeah I think um, anytime now that uh, you know today in 2021 you mentioned the DRC the first images that people think of is, you know, a child somewhere in the mines um, carrying some cobalt and, uh, you know, supplying it to the Apples and the Dells and the Microsoft and perhaps the lawsuit that they'd just recently gone through in 2020 with what they had um, gone through. And I think from an economics perspective, um, people have been trying to figure out how it is possible that there is such a huge supply um, and also a huge demand of um, the minerals and the resources in the country, and yet the country remains um, one of the most poor countries in the world. And not just poor in terms of the economy, but poor in terms of education, poor in terms of uh, uh, you know uh, political freedoms in the country and people what people can and cannot do, um, and also just poor in terms of uh, civilian uh, you know peace because they've only ever known military mutiny in that particular country, right? And so economics have, you know, they go in in terms of the, the, the financial perspective. Why is it uh, suffering the way that is suffering? And then think then from a political academic perspective, people automatically just go into, let's figure out the political system. Is democracy working there? Is it because of the dictatorship that the DRC has been suspended under? 
what has made it the way that it has made it. And then um, historically, historians will come in and say that, no, let's take into consideration um, the colonial area and, and, and the role that uh, you know, uh, Belgium had played in putting uh, uh, Belgium in the way that it, it's not Belgium, but the Congo in the way that it is today. And then historians will go in and to say that let's let's study people like Petrus Lumumba and Ocha Chonga and the Katanga province and the dynamics that were going on over there. Let's let's study the different leaders um, and the role that they have played to be where they are. Let's study all that type of stuff. And I think that instead of trying to analyze it um, separately from an economic perspective and from a political perspective and from a historical perspective um, to get the bigger picture and to truly understand what is happening, you have to amalgamate all the different perspectives to get the full picture. You can't just look at it from one perspective, because if you just look at it from one perspective, you are 100% going to lose certain parts of the picture and some things are just not going to make sense to you um, and I think that's what I want us to try to unpack in the podcast today is to try to get that full understanding and I think that's what we tried to do last week we laid the foundational work of it of this picture that we're painting right uh, looking at it in terms of the the colonial base if you may if we're going to try to look at it using this picture uh, analogy the the canvas of, of of the Congo started off you know being blackened um, if we want to use artistic colors, being blackened by um, Belgium arriving and kind of taking it um, as its territory. And it was one of the countries uh, that Belgium had colonized that really brought in that nation a lot of money. And we already had established um, from the podcast last time that the reason why it brought in so much money was because the DRC was just so rich in so many important uh, uh, minerals. It was rich in uranium, which was important for, uh, you know, um, nuclear production, which we know played a really huge role in 1945 during the World War. We know that it was rich in diamonds, which we know that then Belgium was involved with some relationships with the Nazis and um, um, using the route of uh, Congo to, to um, give a couple of uh, uh, diamonds over to the Nazi side of things. And I'm talking about corrupt Belgium uh, uh, business officials, not the actual Belgium government. Don't get that confused. Belgium never supported Nazi Germany. Um, talking about private individuals and private uh, businesses that were involved in exploiting through the mining sector and helping out the Nazis to accumulate some capital by using the diamonds that they had found in the Congo. We're talking about a country that was producing money for Belgium because it was just so rich in rubber which you know that was very important for the industrial revolution and even more so important for uh, transportation systems and even to today rubber is probably one of the most practical uh, uh, minerals that are out there or uh, natural resources that are out there that is used for practically almost anything and everything right and we're also talking about a country that was rich in copper and we know that copper is very important for machine uh, uh, um, production and to this day um, the DRC probably holds the most uh, military equipment and guns that have been sourced and have been produced by the country itself, right? And um, we know that's because it's, it's rich in many other resources and in many, many other minerals. And Belgium knew this, they knew this, and they, and they wanted to um, continue to hold on to um, the Congo even after the country had gotten its independence. And I, and I put independence in huge inverted commas. Um, 
but uh, we, we discussed that in part one about how um, valuable this country was to Belgium and perhaps still is today. We can argue for that as well. Um, but it contributed a lot to the wealth and the power that Belgium does have today um, in the EU and just as one of the richest European countries that is out there. Um, and that's where we kind of like left things off last time. And I think today we can just pick it up from, okay, now what happens after the independence? Um, and even before the independence, what led to independence in the first place? What were the terms that were discussed in the independence? Um, what was the conclusion from there and how that could have influenced the different political factors and complexities that we see today in the Congo? Yeah, I also just wanna, uh, delve a bit deeper into what you talked about when it came to economists. And I feel like, <clears throat> guys, if you want to see one of the biggest failures, <clears throat> in my opinion, of, you know, the, the discipline of studying politics, then please research development theory. Um, it's one of the biggest failures in academia, like of all time. And I, I'll tell you this straight up because it shows... <clears throat> it's basically just repackaged colonialism because a lot of these people who are pushing this narrative, they came from a perspective that the West is the standard for success. And we need to use Western historical examples to explain the rest of the world's issues. And in, from that perspective, we need to develop the rest of the world. And then they started recommending all these kinds of things like, um, and this is probably the answer as to why we're seeing the U.S., developing so many dictators they're looking more for stability and they're looking at oh you know uh, we want stability you have to have strong government which in quote just means dictatorships and from that strong government you'll essentially be able uh to quell the middle class uh, uprisings essentially so that um you can be able to in quotes have a more stable economy i mean this is this is clearly you know and uh, unfortunately these organizations like the imf and the World Bank, they're built upon this epistemology and they start to just preach it as if it's truth. And you can go ahead, read those books, and I'm pretty sure you guys are just going to end up closing the book after the first page because honestly, this is how people are seeing things instead of looking at it from a historical perspective. Like, I'm sorry, you can't just be asking, oh, why are African countries in so much debt? And then just ignore the almost 100 years of colonialism that led to these countries being deprived of their industry. They're like, oh, why didn't you develop your industry? Um, maybe it's because colonial markets were opening up. And if people were, for example, blacksmiths, and let's say you're a British colony, if they're starting to ship in their own spoons and their own ironworks, et cetera, then you're obviously going to go out of business as a blacksmith because it's already been made and produced outside. So even in terms of that, like, you can see how colonialism has really retarded African countries' growth. And then from then now, obviously, you know, it's a question of debt. It's a question of foreign interference. And I think in Congo specifically, this is one thing that we really do have to discuss. It's how there's been, it seems almost con conspiratorial, but it's very true that the world has been benefiting from Congo being in a constant state of war. It's been almost forever. Whether it's one war, then there's a peace treaty, then there's another war that started. There's rebel groups here. There's other African countries getting involved. It is so, so crazy. So perhaps maybe we can sift through the smoke and the dust. Uh, and Yanga, you can ex explain to us a bit more about what happened in 1960. 
Yeah, sure. Um, a lot actually happened in 1960. That was probably the year that just exploded everything. Um, and it all started with uh, Congo asking for independence, right? Um, and basically before Belgium was like, okay, we will give you independence. They were kind of hesitant because this is a country that has given them so much money um, and giving them up completely, completely um, would be something that would be stupid of them. And so the first thing that the Belgium uh, country did, kind of like what majority of uh, former colonial powers did before giving independence, they kind of established an advisory board, right? And on the advisory board, they had uh, Congolese representatives um, to try and uh, let, let them know about, okay, what will be the strategy after the independence has happened, right? And obviously the first thing that the advisory board said is give us independence, that should be the first strategy over there, right? And so Belgium was like, okay, cool, we'll give you the independence, but then now a new government has to be has to be established here in, in Congo. And so then in 1960, there were the Congolese elections. And for the Congolese elections, there were four um, main big parties. There were over 50 parties that were more than 50 parties that were registered, but the four main ones were the Confederation of the Tribal Associations of Katanga, the National Movement of Congo in Leopoldville, the Democratic Rally of Kauai, Kwango and Kuilu, and the Movement of the Evolution Development of the Rural Economy in Congo, amongst other, uh, uh, other uh, political parties that had registered over there. And the political party that won was the National Movement of Congo in Leopold, or the um, uh, NM. NMCL. Oh my gosh, I'm going to really try my best. I'll just keep on saying the Leopoldville party. Okay, so that one won and it was led by Opetris um, uh, um, Lumumba, right? But here's the thing, this particular party, uh, Lumumba's party, um, unlike the rest and majority of the other parties that had registered in the elections, um, it wanted a unitary government. The other parties wanted a federal uh, state, right? And they wanted Congo to be a federal state to be divided up according to its different provinces, right? And Lumumba's party said, no, they wanted it to be a unitary state with a very strong centralized government, right? And so obviously you can assume that if majority of the parties that were registered supported a federate, uh, federate state, and you've got this one that won, that wanted a united state, he automatically had gotten some enemies almost immediately after coming into power, right? So you've got Lumumba now as the prime minister of, uh, of Congo in 1960, right? Um, and the province that was very much outwardly on its dislike for the the, this, uh, the the federate state was Katanga, right? And this is very important for us to note because Katanga hosts most of the rich resources that Congo has, right? And Katanga, uh, uh, the province of Katanga under U de came up and they said that, no, we don't want this unitary uh, government bullcrap. And so uh, what, what they did over there is that the uh, uh, who's the leader of uh, Katanga kind of shared the same sentiment of saying that, no, we shouldn't be having a unitary uh, state. And uh, Lumumba's solution to this was like, well, then you know what I'm just going to do? I'm just going to ignore you, okay? Do whatever you want to do. I'm just going to ignore you. That was Lumumba's uh, solution. A uh, horrible solution, if you ask me, because now you've got Katanga not necessarily being represented in the government and in governmental affairs, right? And that was Lumumba also kind of shooting himself in the foot, because now what had happened is that 
um, this new government already had its problems, right? The first of which was that it was lacking in experience. And Belgium knew this, right? They gave them their independence, but made no effort of trying to ensure that this government was educated on some level, right? And I just want to make a comparison right now in terms of, so maybe some, some of you might be questioning and be like, okay, fine, but a lot of African countries kind of had the situation where they just had gotten independence. Technically, none of them had gotten experience of how to govern their people, right? But I just want to bring it a little closer to the South African context, right? And just draw um, uh, the, the contrast over here. Within the South African context, um, the ANC, while it was under its liberation movement, from the 1950s, the second, actually from 1948, the second that the apartheid government um, became a thing, and then in 1955, the Freedom Charter was drafted, um, they were already working on strategies on what it would look like to govern a democratic South Africa. They already had a vision on the kind of South Africa that they were going to govern after apartheid, right? And um, and so what had happened was that a lot of their leaders, or at the time they called themselves the comrades, a lot of the ANC comrades were going through uh, a leadership camps, uh, governing leadership camps that were um, either being done in exile, right? Where we know that oh, Nelson Mandela had flown in different places of the world where he was learning about the governing systems from China, from Russia. Um, and, and, and as well with his counterparts, they were learning about, you know, what it means to govern a, 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 a system. And so by the time that the new constitutional settlement of 94 was being negotiated, they had a pretty, pretty clear uh, foreground on the vision of South Africa and where they wanted South Africa to go. And that's because they had gotten those years and years of experience of trying to understand how the governing party should be like, right? Cool, so now let's look at it in terms of the a Congolese perspective. They did not have that, right? The Belgian government did not allow that to happen in the first place. And there's a number of reasons why this wasn't necessarily possible. By the time that Congo had gotten its independence in 1960, there were only 16 people in the whole country who held a college degree. And I need to emphasize this, 16 people in a country that has a population of, I believe, 57 million people, only 16 people held a college degree. This was one of the poorest educated countries in the world. And now you had people in the position of power who had to figure out how do we govern moving forward? How do we govern an uneducated population? How do we govern an illiterate population? How do we govern a population that has been so scorned by colonialism, that has been so ripped and so disconnected with the global sector, that had to catch up with the different industrialization uh, phases, because they were not even necessarily even in like the first industrial revolution, but by the time it was uh, 1960, the world was already moving into its third industrial revolution. They were still very much stuck um, in, in, in bare minimums of the first industrial revolution. And Belgium knew this and Belgium understood this. And that is literally the only reason why Belgium was like, yeah, sure, you have your independence now, now deal with it, right? So this is the, uh, um, tensions that Petrus Lumumba is trying to deal with, while at the same time dealing with his own people, particularly the people of the Katanga province, saying that they don't want to support his government because they want to be its own independent force, right? So these are the kind of dynamics and complexities that we're talking about over here, right? Now, 
One of the conditions that Belgium had put out for Congo in order to get its independence was that the uh, uh, the, the army of Belgium, which most of, most of them were white people, the army of Belgium had to stay. Right? It couldn't. It couldn't go. That was one of the conditions of the independence. Right? But obviously, Congolese officials now and also Congolese people were like, no, I also want to be part of the army. How come our army is going to be white people and not our own people, right? And so you can kind of imagine what happened over there. They shot them and it was kind of like this, this war thing. Um, and it's also, by the way, because of the fact that a lot of the, the Congolese people already had had guns. That's what makes Congo so different, by the way, from other African uh, countries where most of the time the government would ban the people from even having guns in the first place. These people kind of had illegally acquired their guns and produced them themselves and all that kind of stuff. But whatever, I go in a tangent. Back to the topic. So now these people have now, now shot the, 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 the white Belgium army troops, right? And so then obviously Belgium knew exactly what they were doing because now Belgium scurries off over into America. This is also at a time now that tensions between capitalism and communism were happening. And they scunder over to America and they say that, see, uh, Congo is practicing a form of communism because they are killing their own soldiers. And this Lumumba guy, he has a hint of communism with him. Help us to send in more of our troops to uh, sorry to pacify the, the the what was going on over there, but obviously we know that now as historians that what was going on over there was that there was an occupation of Congo that was very much undermining the sovereignty, the new sovereignty that uh, uh, Congo had just uh, gone through. So the Belgian troops send in their people. And then um, there's like a mini little war that goes on between the Congo officials and them wanting to be part of the army and the Belgian troops and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden the UN is like, oh, maybe now I should care, right? And then the UN in it caring, it's like, we're going to send a neutral peacekeeping force that was made up from uh, Switzerland, if I remember clearly, between Switzerland and Sweden, right? And it's like, why would you send a peacekeeping force that you know barely even fights, doesn't necessarily have any military training, is probably the most neutral neutral uh, uh, thing that won't necessarily be protecting the interests of the Congo people. So these peacekeepers arrive there and they say, no, we're not going to be taking sides and they're not going to use any force at all, right? And Lumumba is like, well, then what the frick is your point of being here in the first place, right? I need your help. I need your protection. So screw you. And so then what Lumumba does is that he turns to the next best thing, the Soviet Union. And he 100% gets his backup from there and his support from there, right? Now, Ondo Shonga, who is um, uh, the leader of Ukatanga, is like, ah, okay, Lumumba is doing this. And we know that the Americas hate this. And so then he goes over to America and is like, look at this. Ulumamba uh, is kind of doing this now and he's betraying our own people. He's employing communism. We don't want this. We just want to be our own independent state. Come through and help us. So then this is now when we've got external powers being uh, uh, infiltrated into the, the, the Congo system other than Belgium. And this is very important for us to note because we're going to try to see the comparison on how transnational corporations as a result of globalization also strang onto the string of coming through to exploit Congo during this whole time under the name of quote unquote, bringing about development if we're using the developmental theory, right? So at this point, um, what happens is that Ikatanga declares itself independent, right? 
they like no no government saying yeah katanga you they declare themselves independent under the rule of the Shonga, the Shonga, right and they're basically ra uh, raising a, a, a missionary army that's the only thing that they do they wake up every single day they go ahead and they fight and they train the little young men and even boys is where the child soldier uh, uh, situation comes from in the drc and what was going on over there and um missionary armies are also very much notorious um for being known on, on how they treat women. And this is also probably because why um, the DRC women, almost 90% of them have succumbed to some kind of sexual assault as a result of, or as a result of the men, especially in the Katanga province. Um, and um, there's a documentary that you guys can go ahead and watch on YouTube that does speak on this, um, that talks about the, 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 uh, the women in DRC and kind of the, um, the, the 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 torturous things that they have been through as a result of um, these um, army missionaries that the Katanga province kind of had and um, yeah may be a little bit explicit just so that you are a little warned about how graphic that documentary really gets but um, how sometimes the soldiers would use the 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 machinery to perform the the acts of violence against the woman. So if you're going to be watching that documentary, please watch it at your own uh, risk. It's very, very sensitive, um, but I think it gives you a reality on kind of how brutally trained those uh, men were in the armies under Uta Shonga, right? But that's just something that you can read about on the side. With that being said, um, the UN now has already been involved in Congo. You've got the Soviet Union that has also been involved in Congo. You've got Belgium still very much having its influence in Congo. Oh, by the way, just as a side note over here, don't think that Belgium isn't involved in Katanga and it isn't taking uh, advantage of the fact that Congo is uh, you know, uh, conflicted and divided at this particular point. There is another province called Iskai, which is just above the Katanga, right? And that province was under the full occupation of Belgium during this time that there was the conflict between these two provinces. And that particular province lies exactly in the middle of the Katanga. And um, I think it's called uh, Sinival, which is the one that um, Ulumumba was still in charge of and was still part of, right? So anyway, so this is happening and now there's all these divisions and there's then the drama, the internal drama between Lumumba and um, I forget his name now, the, the, the president. So Lumumba was the prime minister and then the president was, um, also starts with an M, brain has just vanished now. But um, that being said, Lumumba fires, no, the president fires Lumumba as the prime minister, and then Lumumba fires the president as the prime minister. And so then now there's literally a, a power vacuum. There is no government in charge of uh, Congo. And so America does what America does best. Because it has been seeing the DRC as functioning as a quote unquote communist country during this time, it then gets this guy, Joseph Mobutu, um, right? And uh, Joseph Mobutu being backed up by the CIA, they go through a coup that has been supported by the USA and with Joseph Mobutu then becomes the, and establishes, yes, with Joseph Kasa Vubu, yes, 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 yes. He was the, he was the president. Thank you very much. Um, and basically what Joseph Mobutu does is that he comes in being backed up by the CIA. And this is very important to note guys. He is backed up by the CIA and he is backed up by America and America has helped him out to establish his coup and he establishes this one party dictatorship that takes over Congo, right? And um, a number of them, the successes from Joseph Mobutu basically um, duplicated that system year on and year on and year on up until today with the current president of Congo, right? 
That being said, what is very, very important to note is that any time that a new leader has been elected, and I put elected in huge inverted commas because Congo has been under a dictatorship since um, Umubuto, right? He passed away in 1996. Since Ever since Umubuto came through being backed up by the CIA, any other leader in the Congo has to be approved and has to be backed up by the CIA and by the USA, right? It's very important to note. And we now know that the only reason why that is, is because of the level of transnational corporation investments that the US managed to establish as a result of backing that coup over Joseph Mabuto that is still affecting the Congo today, right? So that, that, that's, where, that's where we are. So it started off with those complex little elections in 1960 and those four different parties, and then Belgium taking advantage of the fact that Congo was united and there was no unification. Uh, obviously we don't know history, Petrus Mumba he died um, at the hands of the Katanga uh, people and he was kind of tortured over there. Um, that's like a really, really long story. Um, but Belgium did what it does best and what any colonial power does best capitalize on the division of the people. You, that's how you conquer, by dividing the people. And it ensured that by giving Congo its independence, Congo only had independence on Belgium terms. And those Belgium terms were 100% still backed up by US terms as well. And that is why we can try to explain why there's this continued uh, cycle of Congo consistently being in a level of impoverishment while it remains one of the minerally rich places in the world. That is because modern day colonialism is still carrying on over there. It is still there, except now the people who are in charge of Congo are not necessarily directly the white man himself, but a black man who has been bought by the colonial authorities to be able to make sure that the, his people continue suffering for the benefit of the global north, right? So that's the big thing that you need to understand is that the leaders are corrupt, but understand the influence of their corruption. What is the background of it? What is allowing them to be able to look at their people, see them suffering and still say, nah, I get my money from the CIA. I'm pretty good. Thank you very much. But continue, continue making sources for them. But hey, yeah, we are an independent country. That's all that matters. So that's like the very intense history of moving from where Congo was in 1960 to trying to understanding it today. And perhaps this is where we can go in into trying to unpack, you know, the global value chain system along with transnational corporations and how they leech off um, this. Um, weird influence of power that is going on in the political system in Congo. Yeah, thank you so much. That was really in-depth. And I highly appreciate the fact that you mentioned everything in chronology and the fact that you went through the different periods. And you obviously told us about the real reason why Lumumba was essentially, yeah, he was in his grave from the moment that he opposed the, the other states, you know? And I think that this is one, one of the other things is like, I, I don't think people also realize how far reaching the consequences of that was because you have you have talked about the US for example and in Dambisa Moyo's book she actually discusses the topic of foreign aid and there's other studies that have been done that actually show that 
the amount of foreign aid given to a country it does not necessarily it's not dependent on how corrupt that country is by even by us or uk standards so people are asking why do they keep giving foreign aid to governments when they know that the governments are going to just take the money because i believe mobutu himself took like 5 billion dollars from the congo and that's that became part of his own wealth and people need to realize that you're dealing with essentially a gold mine in a gold mine in a gold mine in a gold mine in a silver mine in a platinum mine that's what the congo is right and it was before even before even before we were dependent on minerals like cobalt and cotton those uranium especially during the cold war imagine saying that you have congo the drc under your belt right the 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 uranium ore over there was ridiculously high in terms of the uranium i think that they when when they were mining in places like canada they would get like 20% uh, of the uranium ore but in congo in some places it would be even as high as 80% uranium and the rest was something that you just had to like you know siphon out uh, to make uh, to to leave the uranium alone so i mean if you look at it from that entire perspective right even this is before obviously i mean during the colonial period um the shinkolobwe mine that's where a lot of the i think it's two thirds of the uranium that was used in the 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 two nuclear bombs that were dropped in that were dropped in hiroshima and nagasaki they came from that mine right so obviously the us was already involved so they knew that the us had an interest in the congo even before independence right and um you guys also need to realize that this declassified documents of us presidents like uh, sorry it was a us president saying that they want lumumba to be taken out and th- you can go and find this it's no longer a conspiracy and when people you know a lot of people are very uh skeptical and they somewhat think that the government is all good and like you know oh no the us could never do this guys like have you been asleep for the past <laughs> you know for the past 10 years or 20 years you know you need to really just open your eyes and see that they they'd really wanted to and there's evidence that actually shows that they either wanted to put uh cyanide in his toothpaste or they wanted to use a sniper to take him out then they saw that oh there's a coup that's happening let's support that coup and then what did belgium do belgium said that they needed to go and protect assets and they needed to go and secure control so they literally sent paratroopers back to katanga and for those who don't know katanga is like literally that gold mine inside uh, the drc right one of the most mineral rich places in the world so people also need to realize and i think lenin mentions this in his book imperialism the highest stage of capitalism although i don't agree with enti- entirely everything that he says right i just need to uh, he gave a very interesting you know uh comparison between or not even comparison sorry description of what imperialism actually looks like and what causes it because what is what is essentially happening that you have major corporations uh in the US and they're forming what's called finance capital with these major monopolist banks like you know Rockefeller right nowadays you can see that with things like you know Goldman Sachs etc they're starting to just you know they they come together with these big monopolist companies and we will mention like Apple as well uh and they essentially bring this money together and obviously you know the more monopolies you have the more of a, a scarcity of resources because obviously a lot of these monopolies will hold back on resources in order to inflate the price and gain more profit so in that situation what's actually going to happen is that they're looking for more resources for them to guzzle up right and they they're looking for those investments and this is exactly what as you said was one of the main reasons why 
the U.S. was still funding and giving aid to the DRC, despite the fact that Mobutu was a brutal dictator that was stealing from his own country. Why? It's simply because he was anti-communist. That's the only thing that he was doing that was useful for the U.S. And that was a very, very key province and a a key country as well. So they said that they could not afford to lose it. And I I think people really failed to understand that because there were some African countries that did seek to go left. And look what happened to them, right? If you look at Thomas Sankara, what happened to him, right? These are all just things that we need to discuss, guys. Even Nkrumah, guys, a lot of people think, and they don't know this, right? but there were around five assassination attempts on Kwame Nkrumah, right? And yes, although he had some other controversial policies that some people didn't like, uh, especially the the one-party government and et cetera, ruling for life, all these different things. One of the main reasons why the the UK also didn't like Nkrumah is because he was um, a sympathizer of socialists and he was even a winner of the Lenin, Lenin Prize, right? So these are things we also need to really just keep them in mind. And especially when the IMF came in, guys, you need to realize it was like literally full, full on washing of the continent of any sort of leftist ideology, right? Or anything that resembled in any way. It didn't even have to be necessarily like, oh, communism, anything that resembled it. You hear that the government wants to tax more. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. The IMF comes and they're like, hey, you have some debt. How about we help you with that? But you have to accept this to be a fiscal policy. And they essentially say that you need to become a full neoliberal state where you have a very small state, etc. So even just homing back on to what was, was happening in the Congo, I think we need to realize that these, these were the, the key foundations for what we see today. So when people ask, oh, why is the Congo poor? And they just mentioned Mobutu, you're really looking at a pixel of the picture, right? You can't just say that, oh, you know, it's Mobutu's fault. Oh, you know, it was who's, who's and whose fault. I guarantee you, even if Lumumba was alive, even if Lumumba had power for considerable, even let's say he decided to become uh, a dictator himself and rule for 10, 15 years, right? We might still have been in the same situation because the DRC has too many valuable resources for the world's capitalist nations to sit back and allow that to happen in peace. That's literally exactly, that's the same definition that we're talking about, the same thing that they used to justify colonialism. And now as we're literally living in the second stage of colonialism or neo-colonialism. So maybe perhaps you can tell us a bit more about uh, some of these transnational corporations, uh, because now we're roughly in like, you know, the 70s, 80s now. um, And like, you know, the oil shock has just happened. Oil embargo has just happened. And, you know, the African countries are now starting to talk about debt. Uh, United Nations, you know, conference and uh, for trade and development has also been formed. Like, what's what's happening now in terms of uh, the Congo, and how did that lead into what's happening today? Yeah, so um, I think the uh, uh, post nineteen sixties, just from a, a world perspective, um, the acceleration of globalization was uh, bigger than what anyone could possibly imagine. Um, truly, there was no state that could um, uh, thrive without being interdependent with another state, and this and this went for for the big states as well, right? And so that was why you know there was this huge proliferation as well of the different uh, uh, new United Nations branches that would ensure. Um, that interdependence would occur from the different states. And we know that, you know, the background context of that is that if a state is interdependent with another state, um, it won't necessarily put put itself in a position where 
there can be another world war that could possibly happen because the risk would be too much for both ends, right? We're trying to uh, uh, ensure this mutually assured destruction, but making it in a really nice way with trade and with um, you know uh, political systems too. So we see political ideologies being interchanged um, and. Now the uh, Berlin Wall has fallen and capitalism is quote unquote one. Um, and so now liberal democracy has kind of become the new norm and what most states should be aspiring to. And, you know, you mentioned now, you know, the Bretton Woods Institute and the World Trade Organization. One of the key um, uh, 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 cornerstones that they had is that in order for them to be able to give aid to a country, that country had to make sure that it had a liberal democracy, um, whatever the frick that means, but it had to make sure that that country had a liberal democracy and had to prove it. Um, and in the case of Congo, it was very interesting because Congo had classified itself as a liberal democracy, even though it was still under a, a, a one-party dictatorship. Um, but it, it did say it ran the same line as Uyawari Museveni right now in Uganda, where it says that, yeah, we know we do have elections, but every single time they would have elections, they would be rigged um, towards the side of the ruling party and the ruling government. And what would happen and still continue to happen today, whoever would be opposing the government wouldn't necessarily be uh, directly uh, threatened, but you ran with the risk of knowing that you could disappear. And you still can disappear by trying to oppose the, the current military regime that is running uh, Congo. But in terms of the transnational corporations, transnational corporations, just if you're someone that doesn't understand what they are, um, these are uh, businesses that come up as a, a, a symptom of uh, the gradual progression of globalization. So the idea of globalization is that there's interlinked economies and because there's interlinked economies, you can expect that companies won't be limited to just the, uh, 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 the borders of their own country. These are companies that go out and establish themselves outside of their country of origin. And a, a big example I can give you of a transnational corporation is something like McDonald's, right? You know that McDonald's is something that originally is from America, but it is planted almost everywhere right now in the world. There's a McDonald's right there, right? But now if we're looking at it in terms of the DRC, what was happening over here is that um, the US employed a very strategic thing. So I think we, 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 we know, and I would assume whoever's listening here as the audience, um, you are aware of the intricate relationship that the US has with its transnational corporations or at least with just its businesses in general, right? There's a huge power influence dynamic that today I think as academics, we're still trying to unpack on how much influence does the government have on business or how much influence does the business have on government? And I think COVID-19 um, and this whole thing with the vaccinations really is a, a resemblance of that question exactly on how you had governments initially that were saying that we're going to be giving these vaccines for free and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden you had big farmer coming in and kind of like dictating and saying that, no, we want to sell it and governments listening to big pharma. And it's it's questioning that dynamic of what 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 is the relationship? Is the government not supposed to be higher up than the business or is the business supposed to be higher up than the government, right? And um, similarly with um, individuals who hold large uh, private wealth. And in this case, I'm just going to use a common example that everyone knows of with Bill Gates, right? Where this one man has got the ability to influence governments in, um, 
telling them, you know, this is the malaria vaccination and this is how it should be put out in Africa. This is a person who doesn't have any uh, 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 quote-unquote state territory or diplomatic relations with the state and yet has got the ability to influence healthcare systems um, in different countries, right? Only because of the fact that he has got money. And um, that perhaps is like a topic for another day on whether or not money is the determinant of where the power dynamic is actually supposed to be shifted in traditional political structures. And the DRC was not necessarily immune to this at all either, right? Where you had the US, because remember now, any leader in the DRC is 100% backed up by the CIA. And the implications of you being backed up by the CIA means that you get funding from the CIA, right? And what you do with that funding is literally your business. The CIA is like, here you go, here's money. Um, and technically what you're supposed to be doing is helping your people. But most of the time, because the CIA already selects leaders that they know are going to be corrupt, that they know are not necessarily going to be taking care of the people, half the time that money literally lands up just being for that person on its own, right? And so then you've got these transnational corporations that go out, if we use the developmental theory here again, that go out to try and better the economies, right? Because now we're looking at it from an economic stance point and from a globalization stance point. They go ahead and they try to better the economies and to better competition and to better demand and supply because we live in an interlinked society, right? And we live in a society where the DRC also cannot be in isolation from the business realm and from trade and the things that are going on over there, right? And so then we've got our fantastic four big monopolies that also go ahead into the DRC. We're talking about your, uh, your Amazon, we're talking about your Apple, we're talking about your, um, even Facebook, I have no idea what the heck Mark Zuckerberg is doing there, but he is there too. We're talking about your Teslas with Elon Musk that he's also there. And they've become really, really invested over here in the DRC, all of them for different reasons, right? We know that Tesla got really in, uh, invested because of cobalt and also some of the mineral resources that the, uh, uh, the Congo had. Um, but then the, the big powers is with, in terms of technology, right? Because now we have to take into consideration how the demand of resources that was relevant to Congo during the colonial era and just, just after the colonial era was very different from the demand of resources that Congo can supply today, right? And this is because of how the fourth industrial revolution has changed the game on what is important and what is not important. And Congo is still relevant because of the fact that it supplies the actual resources that formulate and build our fourth industrial revolution today. And that's our cell phones, those are our laptops, and any other electronic device that you can think of is made out of a, a, a mineral called Colton, right? And Colton is kind of like this tiny little black rock that um, you really, really have to dig to find it. And you can't dig necessarily with proper industrial uh, uh, machinery because you might just damage it because of the force you might be using. And so therefore it needs a really big uh, a labor force to come through and kind of like dig for that whole entire thing, right? And so then this is where you then have the mine workers over there in Congo who are working on the Colton systems and so on and so forth. Technically, these mine workers under the international law are supposed to be uh, older than 16 years old, and they're supposed to be treated with a certain level of work conditions and so on and so forth. But obviously, we know that that's not the case in the DRC. 
Because of how tiny these rocks are, sometimes the adult hand can miss uh, uh, grabbing off uh, uh, on the rocks and pulling them off. And sometimes some of the rocks that um, people need to go under are so massive and the holes that they need to go through are so small that only a child can really fit in there and grab what they need to grab, right? And so then you can guess what has happened. So remember I mentioned in the Katanga province that the, the, the military over there doesn't necessarily treat women too well and too great and so on and so forth. One of the things that they do over there is that um, once they've kind of like occupied your area and kind of like taken over and established their quote unquote territory over there, what they do is that if there's women who are staying over there, especially if it's women that are single mothers, um, what they usually do is that they take the, the kids and they also take the mothers. Most of the time they kind of separate them, but they try to put them together and they go ahead and they go dump them in these mines and they force them to dig up this Colton um, most of the time without any pay, right? They kind of, to a certain level, become uh, indentured laborers, right? And so then what they do is that then these women kind of then dig up and these children dig up these uh, Colton supplies. And then the uh, military of Katanga then sells those Colton supplies to Apple, to uh, Microsoft, to Dell and so on and so forth. Then in 2020, there was a law lawsuit that was opened up in the US, very ironically, that was trying to prove how there was the child labor that was going on in the DRC and how it had to come to a halt and how it had to come to a stop. And the companies that were charged over there was Apple, um, Amazon apparently was also charged there. You, you had um, your Dell, your Microsoft, your Tesla also um, being charged for making use of child labor and so on and so forth. And um, obviously the lawsuit didn't necessarily go too far ahead because these are massive corporations. They can silence anybody at any time. And this was also not the first time that this lawsuit was even being brought to light in the first place. And I'd also just like to point out the fact that this particular issue in the DRC has only ever reached the United Nations Human Rights Council. That's the only time that it has ever been discussed, the issues that are going on in the DRC, right? And the only reason why it was even discussed in the Human Rights uh, Council was because of the documentary that was released that was showing how the women were being treated in the province of Katanga. But this particular issue hasn't been discussed in the strongest uh, um, branch of the UN, which is the UN Security Council. The last time that the UN Security Council discussed anything that had to do with Congo was at the time where Congo had its tensions in the 1960s just after it had gotten its independence. And the only thing that they had said there was, well, we're just going to send you peacekeepers and they're really not going to do anything. They're just going to be supporting the Belgian government, right? And this is very important to note because even structurally, what organizations are supposed to be helping the DRC, are supposed to be rescuing the DRC. These organizations that stand for, oh, because we have created an interdependent system, we need to make sure that there's proper prosperity in every single realm and in every single aspect, except when it threatens the wealth of our own country, right? And in this case, the thing that is threatening the wealth of our own country is that if there's any UN intervention in the DRC, if there is any external intervention outside of the UN, for example, so let's say, for example, the UK decides to have a change of heart and Russia, whatever, some of the superpowers decide to have a change of heart and be like, okay, yeah, we can help out uh, the Congo, it's going to affect the American businesses, right? 
And the second that it affects the American businesses because of that weird power dynamic that we can't quite define on who exactly is in charge of government and who exactly influences governmental policies, we don't know the reaction that could come from them. And so that's why people leave it. And now there's this new trend that's coming up on whether or not because now China has no longer been classified as an emerging market, but it is now classified as a global power, the role that China can play in um, accelerating the suppression that is happening in the DRC, right? Um, and not necessarily uh, do it in a way that is as explicit, for example, as what the US has done by backing certain leadership positions and so on and so forth. And the, there's people questioning whether or not China, through its transnational corporations and through its mining interests that are in the DRC, because it also does have some, if it's not going to find a way to manipulate the powers on the ground already, similarly to what uh, 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 similar to what Mobutu had kind of done of manipulating the powers in the ground to try and maneuver the economic benefits of the DRC to also benefit China in and of itself, right? And that's why people are questioning things like the Belt Road Initiative. What is it doing in the DRC? What benefits is it going to bring to China and also to um, the Congolese people? What is the discrepancy between the Chinese labor that is going in over there in the DRC to do the work itself versus the DRC people that have already been employed. And if you go ahead and go look at those st statistics, you'll see that the labor that's been employed in DRC for the Belt Road Initiative barely is any Congolese people in the first place. It's only Chinese people, right? So why is that? What is China's intentions behind being part of the DRC, especially now that it has gotten that status and that uh, role of being classified as a global power, right? Especially also because of the fact that the West as a result of things like populism, thank you, Trump, for what you've done. As a result of, um, uh, you know, if, even in the West, in the side of the UK with uh, Boris right now and kind of like his also populistic ideas and also some populistic leaders that are emerging within the EU itself, we can see that there's symptoms of a gradual decline of Western power, right? And so we see that because China is now the global power, what is its devices? What is it planning? What is it going to do with the province of Katanga and not just with the province of Katanga, with the whole of DRC? What different thing is it going to do as compared to the kind of investments that China has made to the rest of Africa? Why is it so vested in the African continent more than it is on making sure that its relationships with the West are consistently at its best. What is it doing? Where is it going, right? And then what we can then see is that the dangers for the DRC is that it was going to go into a new loop of consistently being under this colonial oppression. It's just that now the face is going to change, right? It won't necessarily be a face that would be coming in from the West, but the face that would be coming in from the East. And it's very interesting on where that, was, that will actually place us as the African continent. Will it benefit us or won't it benefit us at all? So, yeah. Thanks once again for, for that in-depth analysis. And I think that, yeah, I mean, one thing that we all need to just sort of keep in mind is that when we're talking about, you know, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Sometimes I really, I genuinely think it's true because um, right now the laptop that I'm using, this microphone that I'm using, the phone that I'm using, they probably all have at least like a large amount of Colton or Cobalt, right? And these are, I think the DRC is actually the one that produces the most cobalt in the world, right? And it's like, that number is incredibly, incredibly high. 
And especially, you know, we're now we're getting into space travel with Elon Musk, etc. You know, I just hate the fact that, you know, a lot of Elon Musk fanboys will come on and they'll be like, oh, no, no, no. He wants to make us an interplanetary species. And then I'm like, yo, like, how are you talking about interplanetary species when they might actually be considerable evidence that your company's involved in child labor in this place? And the thing is, I know that it's a prerequisite. Like, there's no way that you can be able to move forward in such a way without getting Colton or cobalt from the DRC. Otherwise, it just won't be enough. <clears throat> and that's why these companies are getting involved. And I tell people, like, you know, this is exactly how things are going. It's like the world benefits from having the DRC poor. The world benefits from the DRC being in a constant state of war. And the world only benefits when the DRC has a dictator, uh, <clears throat> yeah, who has a dictator who can be able to at least uh, what's it called? Who at least has you know some level of control of a province like Katanga, and they have to be a yes man, right? That's literally the main you know category that they're putting these DRC leaders into. So even as we close the podcast, I just want us to reflect a bit more on, <clears throat> as you said, the role of China, for example, because I've actually done another podcast on the role of China, and I personally don't think. I mean, I'm very sp- suspicious because world powers do not discriminate. World powers are seeking to consolidate and you can only consolidate if you control large markets like that. So the thing is, what if it actually comes in the form of, you know, an economic form of colonization where you have a dictator, they know that they're not going to pay back that loan, but they do what? They say that, oh, guys, you know what? We're coming to restore safety. We're coming to restore order. We'll help you with the issue of child labor. Or they'll say that, oh, we're coming to secure these areas from certain rebels. We might even be surprised, by the way, because right now China is a very big economic power. But I would not be surprised if you start hearing, oh, the People's Liberation Army is now uh, setting their boots down in a place like the DRC so that they can, in quotes, secure the area and they can help the, 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 the government in DRC control the resources. Then all of a sudden you find, or that's option A, or option B, you give them a loan, they don't pay back the loan, but you take these mines as collateral, right? That's another thing that's very, very dangerous. We've already seen things like this happening. So in terms of how the power dynamic is starting to shift, we can definitely see that. But at the same time, I don't think that, I mean, it's going to be very interesting because companies like Apple, companies like Microsoft are extremely large. And if you want to talk about, uh, you know, some people might be asking, like, what's wrong with these companies? Why why are they so, you know, uh, why are they really just uh, neglecting human rights around the world? And it's not just that. It's like the sweatshops in places like Bangladesh, Vietnam, in China itself right? People need to realize that they're looking for the cheapest form of labor possible. And we're not saying a transnational corporation in and of itself is bad, although many Marxists have argued that. I don't think I'm of that opinion, but it's just a matter of ethics, right? And ethics can only be enforced by someone who has more power, right? Than the person uh, who these ethics are being preached down to, right? And obviously, as we can see in the U.S., when you have companies like Goldman Sachs, you have big companies like Victoria's Secret, you have big companies like Zara, all these big corporations are lobbying the government. And this, I think, for me, is one of the worst, 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 worst combination. It's like democracy plus capitalism, right? Or essentially neoliberalism. And obviously that manifesting in the form of democracy and a full neoliberal market with these things like interest, etc. What's going to happen is that you're going to have the poor getting poorer, the rich getting richer. And once those rich people begin to accumulate wealth, they will lobby the government and essentially put the government into a chokehold 
and tell them that this is what you need to do. And this is exactly what happened because did you see the way they were scrambling around when they're talking about things like the, the vaccine, they wanted to patent that vaccine so that they could get dibs guys. This is the world that we're living in. We're in a pandemic. They're still trying to patent these things. That's the first concern for them. They're not focused on anything else but the profit and big pharma is even the worst one, right? The fact that they can even uh, deal with insulin, forcing people to ration their insulin because of how expensive it is. So the point that I'm trying to make and trying to like loop it back in with the DRC is that if the U.S. government decided that, oh, you know what, we're actually going to help the, the government in DRC, or at least we're going to uh, you know, help sort out the child labor issue. We're going to do an inquiry into it. We're going to tax our companies. We're going to find them billions of dollars for this. The moment they can't even do that because they'll be out of office the next time. And I think there was another statistic that even mentioned that uh, it's more than 90% of the time, I think, the, the company, not the company, but the party that's funded the most in the US also wins the election, right? So I need you guys to make those connections and to see as in, it's a lot of discussion between the academia, but companies are becoming so big and they're becoming so, so intimidatingly large that some of them even have their own towns, right? Keep in mind this, right? So now if you put those two together and you see these corporate entities with time, it may not be now, but with time, they will actually overpower the, uh, the government, right? Yeah, Vermont, essentially, yeah. So, like, I think there's a lot, obviously, we should discuss, but uh, we'll do closing statements for now. And again, thank you so much for being part of this two-part series. But uh, is there anything else you wanted to just sort of add or just sort of uh, mention in closing before uh, we end the podcast? Yeah, um, I just think that, you know, um just with what i've mentioned earlier in the podcast the fact that we have to move away from analyzing issues in africa by just looking at it from one perspective by just um employing an economic perspective or a political perspective um it's very important to um culminate a historical perspective economic and political perspective to gain the full picture um to try to understand why things are the way that they are in africa and now maybe you're someone that's just like, mm, well, so what, you know, so what now that you've shown me this picture, so what you've let me know about all this stuff of, of what's going on and so on and so forth. Um, and I think the, the thing I just want you to take away from this is I want you to see the, the, the trend and kind of understand that we are literally in a very transitional period right now, right, where um, as a result of uh, something like the fourth industrial revolution, um, there's a change in, as we've just mentioned now, power dynamics um, in traditional uh, uh, political ways of trying to understand how things should function, where largely in the past, it was all about the state, the state having the power to be able to do what it could possibly do. But today, because of factors like globalization, because of factors like capitalism, because of factors like the fourth industrial revolution, um, power dynamics are changing and there's new actors that are not traditional state actors um, that have the ability to control the narrative, that have the ability to paint the new picture, right? 
and also even have the ability to paint the historical evidences that we're going to be studying in the future, right? Because we mentioned a little earlier the fact that, oh, a lot of the stuff that we're studying on colonial history was narrated by white people and so on and so forth. Half of the time, most of those people that have written something have been in some level of state power, have had some level of state influence and so on and so forth, right? But now, because of this push, of people only caring about economics and the numbers and what they say. And we know this is because capitalism is reaching its peak, right? Because people only care about the numbers, because people only care about um, what do the stats say? What does the economy say? Um, it makes us stand the risk of being able to lose the nuances in between, right? The, the, the non-state actors that don't have agency. And in the case of the DRC, we're talking about the women that aren't being represented in the, uh, uh, the DRC government. We're talking about the children that are being exploited in order for these powerful non-state actors to be able to benefit and to be able to get their profits whenever they want to, just so that they can remain at the top of the global value chain system, right? We're talking about the nuances of uh, people in the Congo wanting that liberation, wanting to be free, wanting to be able to reap the benefits of their country being the richest country in the world and yet still being left on the backhand of being the poorest country in the world. Um, and by the way, guys, there's not a big gap between the education system, the fact that there were 16 people that graduated in uh, 1960 with a college degree versus the, the people who have a college degree today in the DRC. Education remains a huge problem over there, right? And we all know that um, the more educated your population is, the much more difficult it is to control it, right? Um, even when society is progressing and society is moving to these new forms of modernity um, as a result of the fourth industrial revolution, these new powers that are emerging. And I think Karl Marx would have quite a lot to say about the cyclic nature of capitalism and how it's merely just a you know, transition of power and doesn't matter who actually has it at a particular point in time. So I just want you guys to really take that into consideration that um, don't take things at face value, question them. Why is it the way that it is? What is the influence that this leader has behind him? Who has a gun to this leader's head? Or does this leader have the gun himself, right? Um, and I think that's what we, we tried to unpack today um, in this podcast. And it was a really, really cool one. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. It was in-depth as usual. Uh, hopefully we'll be calling you Professor Yangas very soon <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, we'll be calling you Professor very soon or Dr. Uh, Dr. Malutana <laughs> will be we'll be calling you that soon hopefully uh, but thank you so much honestly you've given this podcast so much insight and you uh, said give me five years yeah we'll see we'll see don't worry don't worry but as you go to masters etc uh, we'll see how things go and yeah the same thing from me guys just be very careful <clears throat> to accept the narratives that first and foremost were being taught in school. Um, slavery was not, and I've, uh, this one thing that I've said is like, you know, people think that when the whipping stopped at slavery, that the whipping stopped worldwide. And that was the end of black suffering. It's like, oh, I went segregation when they passed the civil rights act, that was the end, right? Or when, when African countries got independence, oh, that's the end, right? These issues are far more complex than that. And uh, in one of my classes, we actually talked about how the truth is the global South countries have achieved political independence, but not international economic independence. And this is a topic that we'll probably get into next time, but thank you once again, Yanga, 
and hopefully we can bring you on for next season as well but thank you guys for listening as well and uh please be sure to let me know if you like the podcast or not please be sure to share it and we'll see you in the next podcast